several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow You know, every once in a while, I get the opportunity to do a story that is of a highly personal nature that reflects back to some of the things that really influenced my wine life. And this story today goes way back to a time when I was teaching at Pepperdine University on the Malibu campus. And a person who was in my class, who at the time I knew was involved with a very prominent wine family, but because I was drinking wine out of a box or a jug, it really didn't mean all that much to me until years later, as I would see the name over and over and over again, this family name, and realize that I had a superstar in my class, at least a member of a superstar family of winemakers and had I been more interested in wine at the time, I would have asked a lot more questions. But here we are decades later. I'm not going to say just how many. And I am sitting down with that student. Her name is Alexa Chapelet Flagler. And she's with me now. And if you're a wine lover and you're not familiar with the Chapelet name, you're not really a wine lover because it's one of the most important names in Napa winemaking history. And Alexa, I am so delighted to see you after all of these years. It is a great pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, David. And and I really appreciate you looking me back up and remembering our times at Pepperdine and you're teaching me how to speak and debate. And <laughs> yeah, let's, let's see what we can do. Never imagined that I would. Yeah, that's exactly what I taught. I taught speech and debate, and I never imagined that I would actually be interviewing you all these, you know, many years later. But you know what I said is 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 so true. You know, I knew the Chapelet name because I'd seen it around. I'd been in wine shops when I was a twenty something, so I recognized your family name. But it wasn't until I became somebody who really had a passion for wine that I realized how significant your name was and your family was to the whole scheme of things where winemaking is concerned. And, you know, and I think you and I talked about a lot of other stuff because you were starting your own business at that time, too. It was a sportswear business, right? Yes. Yeah. Electrosport. But you've always been a part of the family, you know, very involved. And I'm really sorry to say just a couple of months ago, your dad passed away, who is legendary. But you and your siblings run the winery now, right? And and mom's still involved, right? Yes. We've actually been running the winery for quite a few years. The, yeah. six, the six of us yeah, and with family. my mom. Yeah. So let's go back to the Pepperdine days for a minute. 
if we can, because you were um, a student there. You were involved with the winery, yes, but were pursuing your own career at the same time doing something else. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that. I had been involved with the winery since I was five, picking grapes, but also picking rocks out of the vineyard. So I had grown picking rocks out of the vineyard. Yeah, okay, that's how that's we started. Five-year-old job. That's yeah. how we started. So I had been involved with it since my early years. When I got to Pepperdine, there was something that changed at that time. Is I asked my father for a job because I wanted to work in the winery, and he of course said, "Absolutely, come on down." No, he said no. <laughs> no. He said there was no place for me. None of us were in the business at the time. You mean none of the siblings were? None of the siblings were in the wine business. Why would he turn you down? He told me that because I didn't have my enology degree, I couldn't be the winemaker. Because I didn't have my viticulture degree, I couldn't be the vineyard manager. He said that I didn't type fast enough, so I couldn't be the office manager. And we had the sales team of Wilson Daniels at the time. Okay. And he said then there was his position, and he wasn't going to be retiring for 20 years. So <laughs> Okay. So therefore, there was no place for me. Well, now, you know, before we say too much more about, and this is such a, an amazing, amazing point, and one I think a lot of people don't think of that you don't necessarily just get a free pass, right? You know, Absolutely Into the wine not. business. But yeah. I want to talk about how significant Chapelet is. You were, if I'm correct, one of the first or second wineries, really truly serious wineries to open its doors in Napa, right? We were the second winery after Prohibition to be built in Napa Valley. The second one after Prohibition. Yes. Under the name Chapelet. Under the name Chapelet. Isn't that amazing? And then where do you figure into the timetable of Robert Mondavi opening his winery? Robert Mondavi opened his winery. We were building at the same time. But wow. he got his up and running just before we did. So he was the first and we were the second. Would things be different if you had been first and he had been second or would it be the same? It'd be a little bit different because because he finished his winery first. He called my father and said, Don, this is Robert Mondavi. And I understand you're new to the valley and your winery is not finished yet. Would you like to crush your grapes at our winery? No kidding. So our first vintage of 67 Chenin Blanc was crushed at Robert Mondavi. Yeah, wow, isn't that something? Of course, you know, when you hear a name like Robert Mondavi, synonymous with wine, really, California wine, and you think about how big that operation is, it's hard to kind of put things into perspective and go back to that time when your father, Robert Mondavi, and others were really traveling in uncharted waters. My father and Robert Mondavi and a handful of others realized that there was a lot of potential with Napa Valley, and there were things that were missing. They started the Vintners Association, which is now a huge group, and they also started the Wine Service Co-op, which is where they all send all their wines to be shipped all over the world. So yeah. my father and Robert Mondavi and a handful of others were the ones who implemented some of the largest venues in Napa Valley today. So you grew, you grew up around these people. Yeah, they were my friends. I went to school with their kids, played basketball with them in their wineries and um, so, helped during harvest. Tell me what that was like to be hanging out with all of these people who would go on later on in life to become legendary. And who were some of them that were just regular old folk who then became folk heroes? Well, all of them are regular folks. And they still are, by the they, way. They absolutely are. Yeah. The, the Davies family, uh, Hugh Davies now runs the Shramsburg. And their whole family were good friends of ours. And we used to play basketball in the caves of Shramsburg. Elias Fernandez, who is a f 
famous winemaker now. He was a good friend of mine in school. But everybody there was just in a small town doing what they do, being normal people. And still to this day, even though they may be famous outside of Napa Valley, they are still the exact same people that we went to school with. It's kind of funny when you think about the world of winemaking. It's not uncommon to be a sports figure and become famous. It's not uncommon to be a musician and become famous. It's not uncommon to be an actor or actress and become famous. I think right behind those three is winemaking. In fact, I can't think of another field where you make, you produce a product, a physical, tangible good where you can become, you know, a celebrity because of that. And it, and it makes it even more interesting when you think about the fact that so many celebrities and musicians and sports stars want to be associated with a wine label. They do. I think that the winemakers who have become famous, the winemakers themselves, don't even know that they're famous. I mean, they do, but it's not to the standard of the celebrities of the basketball stars. They still have down-home roots. They are very interested in the growing process of the wines and the grapes as opposed to the stardom. Does it bother you when you see a celebrity attach their name to a wine label and you know that they had absolutely nothing to do with that wine? I don't think about it too much. It, things have changed. When we got to, to St. Helena, it was a town of 2,000, and there were 35 wineries there. And I believe there's over 350 or 400 now in Napa Valley. So yeah. things have changed dramatically with the stars coming in and the celebrities coming in and people coming in with boatloads of money to do whatever they want in the valley. And that has changed things. But the grassroots of the people who live there is still very kind, very giving. Everybody would do anything. That's for something each other. that I that I always like to say because there is no statement that is more true than that. We're talking to Alexa Chapelet Flagler. Her family, Chapelet, the Chapelet family, is responsible for really some of the absolute finest wines ever made in America, still made in America. It is one of the grassroots wineries of the Napa Valley and therefore a grassroots winery of this entire country. Nothing that I could say negative about this label. It's one of my favorite wines to drink. And the best part of this story is decades ago, Alexa was a student of mine long before I appreciated the legacy that her family would have in the California and American wine business. And so we're going to talk more about that. I want to talk about what it took to finally get you involved in the winemaking business because dad said, if you don't have the background and the education, you're not in. So we're going to dive into that next. Okay, Alexa? That sounds great. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio. We like to talk about... A few days ago, a listener visited our wine bar, the Grape Encounters Emporium, because he wanted to see for himself if the wines from Cardella that I brag about all the time are as good as I keep telling all of you. He had driven quite a long distance to check out the Cardella wines, so we were delighted to let him sample them all. When he was most of the way through the tasting, I asked him if I had oversold these wines in any way. He smiled and replied, Absolutely not. I can't recall any winery blowing my mind with virtually every wine they make. But after watching literally hundreds of faces light up after the first sip, I can tell you without any reservation that I believe Cardella is poised to be the next great American cult winery. 
extraordinary whites, incomparable reds, insanely great values. I love Cardella's wines, and you will too. Learn how to get yours online at GrapeEncounters.com. For years, I've been dying to get a truly exceptional wine refrigerator to keep my liquid assets safe from the scorching summer heat that can turn awesome wine into teardrops. Heat is the number one enemy of fine wine, and collectors will tell you that a wine cellar is absolutely essential. Well, that's just not true. For a tiny fraction of the cost to build even a modest cellar in a converted closet, you can own a wine refrigeration unit so exceptional and so beautiful that you'll want to show it off to absolutely everyone. My unit is truly the best there is. It's from King's Bottle, the experts in wine preservation and cooling. King's Bottle has wine refrigerators for every need. They're gorgeous to look at and priced lower than you would ever imagine. Want to see why I'm so excited? Click the King's Bottle link at GrapeEncounters.com. King's Bottle wine refrigerators are so cool. See them at GrapeEncounters.com. Got a list of things to do before I die. If I laid one on top of the other, they stand about three feet high. He's back, and he's not alone. Your grape encounter continues with David Wilson and a little help from his friends. Sure ain't easy putting off getting round to my unfinished business. You know, don't you love it when things in life come full circle, when you get to finish something you started a long time ago, you get to understand the significance of that moment so long ago and realize that it contributed to a profound change in your life. Today, I'm talking to Alexa Chapelet-Flagler. She was a student of mine many years ago when I was teaching speech and debate at Pepperdine, and I remember that all too well. You as well? I completely remember it, and I credit you for my speaking so well these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah if this interview goes well, then I take full credit for it, okay? No problem. I, I, I don't think that you or I ever expected that we'd be sitting here doing this no, right we now. Didn't. I lost touch with you for a very long time, and... You know, this is one of those cases where I can credit Facebook for reuniting us. But you were in my class, and I knew the name Chapelet. I understood that it was a pretty important winemaking family, but it wasn't until some years later, as I became more and more interested in wine, that I realized just how significant it is. And Chapelet is an unusual name, at least, you know, here in the States. So when you use your name someplace, how often does somebody go, oh, uh, the winemaking family? Quite often. Um, Like that's a regular thing, right? Quite a bit. If they have any knowledge about wines, they do pick that up. Yeah. But just having the name Chapelet doesn't give you entitlement, it turns out, because your father, who was right there side by side with the likes of Robert Mondavi, really doing the hard work that eventually made Napa and Sonoma 
you know, world-class wine regions. Even in those days, you didn't get a pass just because you were a family member, right? Absolutely. So dad said, no, you can't come to work for the family. You don't have the education. So how long did it take before you got to be involved? Well, the funny thing is, is that, well, I was at Pepperdine. If you remember, Pepperdine got out about a month earlier than most schools. Right, because it was on a trimester system. Right. A weird system. Right. Well, I had a month to do nothing, and I decided that I would call a distributor in Texas and that I would go work for a distributor, and my dad did not know that. And I called Tony LaBarbera, who was the owner of the distributing company, and asked if I could come work for him and that I was a student at Pepperdine, and I'd like to come and work for him for free. And just learn. Well, why would you just out of the blue pick a distributor in Texas? I had friends that lived there and I knew I could stay with them. Okay. And I just wanted to learn what the distribution side of the wine business was, just for my own knowledge. Which, by the way, is the really tricky part. It is a tricky part, absolutely. So I called them up and I said, I just want to work for free and I want to learn what the distribution network does and how it works in a large distribution company. So he said, Absolutely. I'd love to have you here. So I drove out to Dallas. I started working in their office, filing papers and just doing whatever I could. And they started sending me out with their reps out into the market just to learn what they were doing and how they sold the wines to the restaurants. Well, most of the conversations started turning towards Chapelet because of my name. And they would say, wow. well, can you tell us about Chapelet? And lo and behold, I'd tell them everything I knew. And one day I was at Mansion at Turtle Creek. Yes. And they asked if I would come do a staff training for their staff. And I said, what's a staff training? They said, just come and tell us about your family and your wines and how everything works up in Napa Valley. But I got to ask this question. You grew up in the Chapelet wine business, but did not have a formal position there. But how did you keep your knowledge up to date? How involved were you in being an ambassador to the family business? Well, I had worked in the winery for many years during the harvest under Tony Soder and Kathy Corson, and I did the pump-overs, and I did... So you're doing, you were doing grunt work, I did dirty work. grunt work and picking the, of the grapes since I was little. So you weren't going to get... Dad wasn't going to give you the cherry, you know, picked jobs, uh, the, you know, the, the really good um, high-profile jobs. You were going to get the, you know, the you know, well, matter, years of hard labor jobs. Matter of fact, when I worked under Tony Soder and Kathy Corson, I wasn't getting paid. And I would come every morning because I was living up on the hill and I would do pump overs at five o'clock in the morning. Right, but explain to people what pump over means. Well, a pump over is when the wine, the grapes are in the tanks fermenting for about, it's about a 10 day process of the red wines, the red grapes fermenting in the tanks. And you need to pump the bottom wine up into the top of the tank to break the cap. And the cap is the skins and the seeds that rise to the top. And they form a cap. And if you don't break that, then it doesn't allow oxygen into the wine to continue the fermentation. Right. So, and then were you doing punch downs as well and all of that? Yeah, we did the pump the pump overs, which were with a, the pumping with the liquid, the liquid, and then and, the punch down. Explain that. Well, actually, didn't in the t big tanks we just did it with the. You just pumps, did it with the with the with the, with the liquid itself yeah, with okay, the liquid right, itself. Yeah. So, I would do just about everything as a cellar rat, and the people working with me were Philip Titus, John Gibson, 
and Dave Long. And just let listeners know a little background on those people. Okay. Philip Titus is our winemaker now and has been our winemaker since 1990. And he also owns Titus Wines. Yeah. John Gibson, he's quite prominent these days. And Dave Long has David Arthur Vineyards up on Pritchard Hill. Yeah. So we were all the cellar rats under Tony Soder and Kathy Corson. And I was not getting paid. And Kathy Corson went to my father and said, Don, you need to be paying your daughter. And he looked at her and said, well, what is she doing? I thought she was just observing. And Kathy went to bat, really? Kathy went to bat for me and said, no, she needs to be paid as much as everybody else is. And my dad just smiled. And he thought, that's great that she's working so hard. And so he did honored. Did you get a check? I did start getting a check. Okay. So that changes everything, right? Well, that changed that part. Okay. Now but, we're going to take a break. Okay. Okay. So hold that thought. We're talking to Alexa Chapelet Flagler. She is one of the, it's, it's five kids, right? Six. Six kids. Six kids. She is one of six kids who are part of the Chapelet family, legendary winemakers in the Napa Valley and distribution in you know, all states, all across America. Really a fine wine brand that is never compromised. And I have so much respect for that. I've loved these wines for years. But more importantly, I've known Alexa since before I really knew that I was going to be in love with wine. And now we get to talk about it. So we'll be right back with more Grape Encounters. Uh, go fill your glass up and make it a little, hey, you know what? Just a little mountain cuvee from Alexa Chapelet. We'll be right back. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. A lot of people ask me why Manzanita Manor's incredible Portuguese dessert wine is called Two Horse. Well, the reason behind the name is as extraordinary as the wine itself. It's because the owner and winemaker at Manzanita Manor Organics actually uses two beautiful horses to pull the plow on her farmland. When you take your very first sip of the Two Horse Vineyard's irresistible dessert wine, you'll immediately experience the winemaker's unparalleled connection to the land. It's what really makes it so good. You can purchase this exceptional wine online, as well as their purely delicious walnut oil, 100% organic heirloom walnuts, and free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts. To learn more about all the Manzanita Manor Organics products, visit mmorganics.com. You can order all their walnut products there, and bottles of Two Horse, of course. Purchase and shipping subject to state and local regulations. Please see mmorganics.com for more information. 
Brave Encounters Radio is always on the lookout for great story ideas, even if they're completely and totally off the wall. So here's the deal. Share your story ideas with me or send a question you'd like to hear answered on the show. If I use your question or suggestion, I'll send you a special gift. I want to know what you want to know. You can contact me on the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook or email david at grapeencountersradio.com. If you've got something for me, I've got something for you. Encounters is 100% estate grown. We have, however, removed the pretentiousness and added a healthy dose of fun. I got a whiny woman, drink wine all the time. I got a whiny woman, drink wine all the time. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I tell you what, life is absolutely not fair. You know, there are those people who got to grow up in winemaking families, and then there was me, where I just had to grow up in a hard labor family. <laughs> Dad, gosh, Alexa Chapelet is with me today, and Alexa is part of the Chapelet family. Chapelet, just one of the finest brands for, gosh, how many years are we talking, Alexa? We're going on our 50th year. 50th anniversary. Wow. Yeah crazy. So how far back do you remember? Oh, oh, I'm putting you on the spot here. But I mean, as a kid, the things in Napa were nothing like what they are now, right? Absolutely not. In 67, when we moved up there, I was young, but I do remember picking rocks out of the vineyard. And we were taken out of school during the harvest for two weeks to pick the grapes. How was the decision made between I know your mom and your dad were really equal partners mom's still alive, very much alive. But how did they come to get into the wine business? What was their background? And how do you make a decision like that that is really a huge gamble in those days? You know, right now, if, if you started a winery in Napa, it wouldn't be such a big gamble if you had the land, if you could afford it. But in those days, you know, that's a roll of the dice, isn't it? Absolutely. My dad, I would say that he was an entrepreneur, and so was his or father. crazy or crazy. And but he had a passion for wine. When he was young, he loved wines and he loved to collect wines. And his favorite wines were Bordeaux. And his favorite wines were the 61 Bordeaux. And he used to give them as Christmas gifts because that was something he knew that was going to be a special I, I, wine. I, I never got one. <laughs> okay. Well, that's why I'm called Best Vintage. Okay. Because I was born in 61. You're called Best Vintage. But what was dad doing before getting into the winemaking business? He had started a company with two of his friends in the coffee vending machine business. Coffee vending. Brewing real beans into coffee for corporate offices so that people could have a great 10 cent cup of coffee. That's right. Those machines were around way back when. You'd put in your money and it would go, and then it would just brew it right there in the machine. My dad bought the patent from the man who had no. invented that machine. Really? And they started selling to all the corporations. No. Yep. They became wow. the largest buyer of coffee beans during that time. And there's a huge correlation, I think, between coffee and wine, by the way. You know, you'll find. 
if somebody loves coffee, they probably love wine and vice versa. Not in every case, but I think coffee is starting to be looked at more in the way that we look at wine. I completely agree with you. And I grew up with my father always loving the perfect cup of coffee. So so were you allowed to drink coffee when you were five years old? Mm, didn't like it. Okay. So. All right. All right. We're getting off the beaten path. Uh, so let's go back. So dad is in this business. And then what's the catalyst? Or was it mom that steered the ship in that direction? No, my mom had five children at the time. And she was a docent at the LA County Museum. And she was an artist at heart and loved art. But my father decided he really didn't want his children growing up in Los Angeles. And he would like to have them have a more country-style life to grow up in. And he told my mom that if he could do anything, he would pack up his kids and his family and move to Napa Valley and start a winery up in Napa Valley. In your opinion, how well known was the Napa Valley in those days? I mean, I mean, what would you equate it to? Because, I mean, it's obviously a household expression now but in those days it would be like no it was some little you know off the beaten path getaway right yeah it was not considered what it is now french was the only wines to drink at that time and my dad thought so too but he had also collected when he collected those 61 bordeaux yeah he also collected the old inglenooks the old bvs old wines from napa valley and he knew that they had great potential and great flavors. And he said that he thought that it was an unexplored area. Now, when we were talking earlier and we were talking about your dad and the Mondavis being the first in Napa, but there were other wineries. You just mentioned BV and others. And crew. So and- what are we really saying when we're talking about when Chapelet and Mondavi first broke ground? There were 35 wineries yes. up in Napa Valley, and those were all pre-prohibition wineries. I see. There were Behringer and, and some of the old stately wineries, but no newcomers. Oh, I see. Okay, so the proper way to describe it is that your father and uh, Robert Mondavi were the first post-prohibition wineries. Yes. Okay, now I understand it. Okay, good. All but right. Mondavi was there. He was already from a wine family there in Napa Valley. Right, exactly. So we were the new kids from Los Angeles to come up and start a winery and start the whole wine process. You were the new kids on the block, yeah. We were. Okay. And and you moved up there from where? From Beverly Hills. From Beverly Hills. Ah, and we were teased a lot about Beverly, Beverly Hills. Wine Billies. Yes, okay. Right. Yeah, I bet you were, we huh? Were, we were teased a lot about that. Okay. So we were talking about the fact that you finally got paid... And then what happens? Do things change? Do you Not at that time. I always had to prove myself. And when I did realize that I would like to be in the wine business more in a longer, not just in the winery, but maybe in sales. And that's when my dad told me there wasn't a place for me. But I had to go out and prove myself. Yeah. And I did. I went to Texas and worked for a distributor. And after a month of working for the distributor, the owner of the distribution company... Tony LaBarbera, called my father and said, Don, that was the best thing you've ever done for Chapelet in Dallas, Texas. And he said, what? What did I do? And he said, you sent your daughter out here to sell wine. He said, no, I didn't. I didn't even know she was out there. Oh, no. Are you serious? (laughs) You didn't even tell him. He knew I was out there, but he didn't know why. Wow. That must uh, have been a great surprise. It was a great surprise, but it took him another couple months. And actually, he and I were on a boat on the way to Tahiti. 
and he was sitting next to me and he said, Alexa, I've been thinking that maybe there is a place for you in the winery. Oh, now, now we're talking. And he said, you know, what you did in Dallas, Texas by selling wine and working with the distributor, I'm wondering if you might want to do that for us as a full-time job. Wow. And that's when things changed. And that's when things changed. Yep. And so you went on to work in sales for a long time. 1984, I was the first of the six kids of the Generation 2 to work for the winery in sales. And I did that for about 20 years until I had my second child. That Then it got a little bit difficult, but I still do an occasional wine tasting or dinner and so, other events. So you grew up around all these families that were in the wine business. And the best that I can figure is a pretty large percentage of wine family members stay in the wine business. And there aren't that many that go off and do other things. I don't know what the statistics would actually be where that's concerned. If you're staying in the wine business, it's a really hard job, no matter what you do. I mean, I don't think that there's harder work than putting out fine wine. Agree? It is a very difficult job. There is nothing easy about being in the wine business, from growing the grapes and having problems within growing the grapes and the different problems you have in the vineyards, to the making of the wine, to the selling of the wine. It is not an easy business at all. What's it like when something goes terribly wrong? What's it like inside the house? And I, I know you guys have had some tragedies along the way with vintages that did not go well. And everybody has that happen at some point. How miserable is it inside the homestead? Well, it's it was crushing for me as a child to watch my father be so disappointed in something and to have his life dream feel like it wasn't coming about. But he would always get back up on the horse and say, well, the next vintage is going to be better or we will work to improve. And his goal was always to make a very, very fine product and to see if he could make the best wines from the hillsides of Napa Valley. Was there ever a time when he seemed like he was ready to throw in the towel? I wouldn't say throw in the towel, but discouraged is what I would say. There were many times I remember my dad being very discouraged when vines would have to be torn out because they had a disease or when a vintage wasn't getting the recognition as it should or sales weren't going as well. As I said, it was a tough business. It's been 50 years of a roller coaster, but the dream is still there, and the output of trying to put out the best product was still in my dad's sights at all times. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break here, and then I'd like to talk in the last few minutes that we have about what you are now doing and your siblings are doing to make sure your father's legacy continues on for a long, long time. Fair enough? That sounds great. All right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Do, 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 do. Wine. Grape Encounters Radio is based in Atascadero, California for good reason. It's the heart of the Central Coast wine country and the perfect home base for endless adventures. Atascadero is friendly, affordable, and offers unparalleled access to world-class equestrian ranches, bicycle trails, hiking, breathtaking beaches, cutting-edge culinary experiences, and endless wine country adventures. Learn more about Atascadero, the gateway to good times, at visitatascadero.com. 
for years, I've been dying to get a truly exceptional wine refrigerator to keep my liquid assets safe from the scorching summer heat that can turn awesome wine into teardrops. Heat is the number one enemy of fine wine, and collectors will tell you that a wine cellar is absolutely essential. Well, that's just not true. For a tiny fraction of the cost to build even a modest cellar in a converted closet, you can own a wine refrigeration unit so exceptional and so beautiful that you'll want to show it off to absolutely everyone. My unit is truly the best there is. It's from King's Bottle, the experts in wine preservation and cooling. King's Bottle has wine refrigerators for every need. They're gorgeous to look at and priced lower than you would ever imagine. Want to see why I'm so excited? Click the King's Bottle link at GrapeEncounters.com. King's Bottle wine refrigerators are so cool. See them at GrapeEncounters.com. For years, I've seen to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio, where we tell you things your parents never taught you about wine. But don't blame them. Grape Encounters wasn't around in those days. I need a good friend and a glass of wine. Someone will say it's going to be alright. Good friend and a glass of wine. It was a whole bunch of years ago that I was a young teacher teaching speech and debate at Pepperdine University. And one of the brightest stars, it probably was the brightest star in my class, was a young woman by the name of Alexa Chapelet, who is one of six kids of her parents who founded the Chapelet Winery in the Napa Valley. This is a wonderful, amazing, amazing winemaking family. And at that time, really didn't realize just how big the Chapelet name was in terms of stature in the Napa Valley, but have come to enjoy many, many a bottle of amazing Chapelet wines and also a lot of really affordable Chapelet wine in the form of a wine that most of you will probably know. It's called the Mountain Cuvée. And boy, I'll tell you what, if you're out looking for wine and you don't find anything you like, but you see uh, Mountain Cuvée there, you can trust that wine. How big a seller has that been for the Chapelet family? Because I would call it an inexpensive wine, really, but you have wines that go up to hundreds of dollars. Yeah, 180 180 is the, the highest. Right. The Mountain Cuvée is about $35 retail. And then our flagship wine is our signature Cabernet, which is about $60 retail. Yeah. But the Mountain Cuvée is a wonderful wine, really easy to drink. It's what I use on a daily basis when I just want to open a bottle of wine. It's so much fun. You can bring it anywhere. It's a wine-by-the-glass type wine. It has been a big part of our portfolio in the last number of years. So what I think is interesting about this wine is the idea that it's not formulaic. There are a lot of brands or I should say products out there where the goal of the winemakers is to blend it to taste exactly the same or, you know, to use the same exact ingredients over and over and over again. And, you know, it's just more of the same. It varies a lot with a Mountain Cuvée, right? It varies with all of our wines. 
Okay. From the beginning, we have always tasted every different area of the vineyard and the different barrels, and we do everything by taste and not by a formula. So we may add a little bit more Petite Syrah or a little bit more Cabernet Franc, but it has to do with that particular vintage and our winemaker and wine staff. And sometimes one of us will be involved with the blendings that will go on for two to three weeks with every one of our Cabernets. How many people get involved in the blending process? How many people taste the proposed blends before we pick a final blend and put it in the bottle? The main group is five. Five. Sometimes it's added, as I said, if my one of my brothers or we are in town and we will be a part of some of the tastings. But the five main people, which is our winemaking staff, they're the ones who are inundated with every day doing the tastings during that two weeks when we're blending. How often does it happen that somebody says, you know what, let's do this and take this off into a distinctly different direction just because it tastes wonderful, but maybe it's not quite the same as what you're used to blending. Does that happen? Not really, because we've had Philip Titus, who has been our winemaker since 1990, and we have our same grapes from Pritchard Hill. So Philip Titus knows that Chapelet has a particular style, and also the grapes that we get from Pritchard Hill have a very distinct style. Right. So we stay with that style within what we are given that year from the grapes. Okay, so everything that you blend has to be an expression of the Chapelet style, and we're not going to go too far afield. Absolutely. If you take five, even ten of our wines and put them side by side of our let's say our signature Cabernet side by side, you will know that they are brothers and sisters all the way through. Yeah. See, I feel the same way about Tommy Bahama shirts, right? Okay. (laughs) I can look at a shirt that I've never seen before and I go, that's a Tommy Bahama shirt. Okay. That's my metaphor for the day. But I like that about winemakers. You taste it and you know it's a member of the Chapelet family of wines or whoever the family may be. I like that there's that certain signature and quality. So where do we go from here? Very tragically, your dad left us and you have the awesome responsibility of maintaining the integrity of the brand. Would you ever sell the winery? No. No. We I'm glad to hear you say that, by the way, because there's a lot of temptation out there when it comes to selling your brand to one of these much bigger operations. Most of us now have been working in the winery for over 20 years, my brothers and my sisters, and we are a part of the winery. We all love the winery and the winemaking. We love my dad's dream. It has become our dream. Yeah. And each one of us has contributed to this dream, and it has become more than just about the wine. It is the farming aspect. It's the love of family. And each one of us contributes. I have a sister who's an attorney. She contributes greatly, also doing dinners around the country. And my other sister's an artist, and she contributes greatly to, we're writing a new book at this time, and she's contributing to that and to art labels. And I talked to your young son, Zach, and he shared with me before we went on the air how excited he is to get involved in the various aspects of winemaking. My kids love to be up in Napa Valley at my parents' vineyard because it has the feeling of, as I said, being a farm, being a farming. And they love the aspect of growing things. And Zachary in particular loves to grow things. He loves to fish. He loves the outdoors. And I could very well see him working in the wine business later in life. Any talk of a a tribute wine to your dad? Is that something that will happen? Not at this time. We are going to do probably a wine for our 50th anniversary, which is coming up. But we haven't talked about it. Well, that would be one and the same, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, I hate to say goodbye. 
because this has been such a thrill. But the next time that you and I are talking, it's going to be walking through the vineyards, right? That sounds and great. And doing a little tasting, right? Absolutely. And perhaps getting a little fuzzy. <laughs> I, I look forward to doing that. I look forward to doing that, too. Alexa Chapelet Flagler, I knew her when. It was many years ago, student in my class. She was part of the famed Chapelet winemaking family and still very much a part of the family, one of the owners of the winery, of course. And I am so thrilled that life has gone so well for you and I, that this brand has been going strong. The one thing I didn't say is that my brother, Searle, is now in charge of the winery and is the president of the winery. And my brother, Dominic, is right-hand man right now. Isn't that awesome? So it's all still all wrapped up in family. I think that's amazing. And you look forward to having your own children get more involved, right? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me today. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been. It it brings back old memories, but I'm so excited about making some new ones. Well, thank you, David. All right. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. If you want more information on Chapelet Wines, the website would be... Chapelet.com. Chapelet. C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L-E-T dot com. Or you can find us on Facebook... Twitter, and Instagram. All right. Until next time, we'll be back here next week, same time, same channel. I expect all of you to go out and buy a bottle of Chapelet and experience a wine that has always maintained that wonderful integrity that began way back when in the very humble Napa Valley of the 60s. 